Hello and welcome to Thinking with Opera, a new series of podcasts produced as part of the DARE partnership between Opera North and the University of Leeds. Begun during lockdown, these discussions and conversations explore opera and its component parts in the light of the wider world of culture and ideas. My name's Dan Norman. I'm a singer, a classical singer, a tenor. I've sung quite a few roles at Opera North and I am chatting here with Alan O'Leary, who's Professor of Film and Cultural Studies at the University of Leeds and guest professor at Aarhus University in Denmark. His most recent book is a study of the 1966 film The Battle of Algiers, published last year. There was a point when I was approached to be involved in a really interesting project, which was a collaboration between Opera North and Leeds University. And that's that's where Alan and I first met. That's great. I, sh- I should say hello from Denmark now. I am Alan O'Leary. And uh, I should just mention as well, given that you kindly mentioned my book from last year, The Battle of Algiers, uh, the film from 1966 was scored, of course, by uh, Ennio Morricone, who oh. I've just seen. Uh, the death of who has just May been announced. May he rest in peace. May he rest yeah. in peace, yeah. So a great man we need to recall before we go into our conversation. And we actually I might come back to the Battle of Algiers later because it's an intriguing uh, carnivalesque text, which is something we'll come back to in a moment, the whole question of the carnivalesque. But you mentioned how we first met, which was when we were able to, to just work together for a few days and investigate what, we might find in common between our different modes of working and concerns. Um, in a studio, we had a studio all to ourselves, a massive studio in the Upper North building down in Leeds. And what kind of came out of that as being of shared interest and potentially of shared inspiration was the whole question of the Carnivalesque. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, when that, when that, the idea of that partnership first came up, I was asked to put down on paper a what I might be interested in investigating and discussing with someone. And I talked about my interest in song, in, in, in performing song repertoire, particularly rather than opera, which to distinguish that is the setting of words, setting of poetry or words in a con- concert context rather than a, a operatic staged performance. And I was saying on the, on my spiel how I feel that... Uh, it, it's a slightly misunderstood art form song that a lot of potential audience are put off by the the seeming sort of high artness of it, its sort of intellectual side, and how I felt that that needed a shaking up a bit because I, I so much of that repertoire is it's no more complicated in terms of intellectual content than a lot of pop songs that people enjoy and people spend a lot of time listening to listening to songs it's just for some reason classical songs seems like something that's forbidding to them and that, and that was that was kind of what i wrote about and alan expressed a real interest in, in working together and we started out in the studio we, we it was a wonderful scenario for a sort of curious creative and academic minds to to meet in where you're given these 
resources and told, you know, spend three t- three days together, do what you like. There's no expected outcome, but we'd like you to just give us a little talk on where you've got to, what you talked about at, at the end of it. And so the freedom that that gave us to, to talk about things was fantastic. And I talked a bit about song. Alan talked a bit about his work and about his, his work on the Battle of Algiers, but also his work on... Uh, the Cinepanatone, these this, uh, kind of Italian carry-on films would be the, the shorthand way of describing what they are. I'm sure Alan will talk a bit more about them. But this this theme of carnivalesque kept coming up. And uh, whilst I was, you know, fully aware of of, of where, where that comes from, I wasn't really aware of the kind of academic study of it and of Bakhtin's theories on it. And... Uh, I found it a fascinating idea and, and we, we developed this idea of like colliding the world's this high art sort of rule oriented world of, of, of song recitals. The idea of, of, of colliding that with, with the kind of grotesquery and, and anarchy of a carnivalesque world. So you've kind of begun to explain what the carnivalesque is there, and we probably should uh, dwell on that for a few minutes. So I'm going to be the academic or, or the teacher here and say, OK, tell us more about the carnivalesque, Dan. Uh, well, so my understanding of it is uh, that it's it, it's talking about this form, uh, the sort of historic form, a theatre sort of for and of the people, a street theatre where the thematic content is very much of the excreting, copulating, vomiting, birth-giving human body. The opposite of where things had got to in the 19th century with, with arts being much more a sort of cerebral process and, and looking looking back to root of a lot of, particularly the theatrical world, being this being this much more earthy root. Yeah, so that's 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 about it really. Yeah. So the carnivalesque as a term, at least in translation, it was coined by Mikhail Bakhtin, who was a a Russian literary critic, incredibly influential, important Russian literary critic, worked on people like Dostoevsky, but also wrote this very important book called Rabelais and His World about the uh, 16th century French writer Rabelais. And what Bakhtin said was that uh, Rabelais in his books, Gargantua and Pantagruel uh, and various other of his writings, but mainly those, um, had adopted the aesthetic of Carnival and put it into writing. And for Bakhtin, what the aesthetic of Carnival was, was precisely this inversion of the normal social order, or perhaps more precisely the kind of suspension of the normal social order, where hierarchies are dissolved and all that is high is brought low. And so this is what you mentioned in terms of vomiting, but also mainly the things of the lower body. You know, so so to this day we can speak of certain forms of gross out comedy as being carnivalesque because they're concerned with bouts of diarrhea or 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 uh, copulation or eating too much and then farting and so on. So this kind of uh, comedy that pen, people tend precisely to look down on is has its roots for according to Bakhtin in a refusal to respect normal social decorum that is typical of the carnival period, when hierarchies and normal social mores are, are suspended and people get to indulge their, their baser instincts. But of course, for him, it's more than this. It's also a, a utopian vision of a world that might be because hierarchies are dissolved. And 
uh, the people, he says, and he, he always talks about the people, are able to have their own, what he calls, second life, indulge in a utopian moment where, where they have enough to eat and have too much to drink and have the kind of sex they're not no, normally allowed to access and so on. Um, and misbehave in general in a way that's also disrespectful and critical of their betters. So this is the, um, the that's carnival. The carnivalesque then is the aesthetic that can be extracted from this. And as you said, is perhaps already present in many songs of the classical repertoire, but can be certainly used to liven up or to trouble the reputation of the classical recital, let's say, song recital, as being a rather staid or slightly worthy undertaking or, or endurance that you have to um, uh, to suffer for, for your betterment rather than for your enjoyment, for your entertainment. Yeah, it's, uh, so it's interesting. I, I'm like thinking about the classical song repertoire, generally speaking, a lot of the poetry involved, particularly in the kind of earlier song recitals, is people trying to find intellectual ways of expressing emotional reactions to situations and things I, I, uh, and there's less of that kind of carnivalesque content or approach which was one of the things that made it sort of fascinating the idea we had an idea you know of producing a sort of something which appeared to be a very cerebral lecture recital which might then just degenerate through maybe circus material clowning or a planted person in the audience to who would you know, disrupt it and break the whole thing down and have it all falling apart, which is quite quite sort of interesting. And the the idea, well, something I was thinking about when you were talking just then, actually, about these sort of bodily functions, is that the kind of laughter that we get from those comic scenes, and a couple that popped into my mind, as you were saying, describing those things, were uh, Mr. Creosote in the, the Monty Python Meaning of Life, you know, where he's just he can't stop throwing up and it, it, it's so it's kind of puerile and repetitive but it if it is the kind of thing you find funny it just it's painfully funny and it's you have a lower body physical reaction in your laughter to it there's still more allow me a new bucket for monsieur and the cleaning woman Hey, maintenant, would monsieur care for an aperitif or would he prefer to order straight away? Um, and there's a similar scene in, in um, a film called Game Night, which my kids were watching last night, actually, where they're, where they're, they're retching because of the, the sight of some blood, I think. And, and just this, there's some people who just, who don't enjoy this kind of comedy or sort of accessing that the, the baseness as in the lowness, you know, as it like the the real sort of low level of that comedy, but it's kind of, it's it's physically low level, and and the kind of laughter you get from that, is a physical reaction as opposed to the the, the Wigmore chuckle, you know, which is which the Wigmore Hall people who who know the the joke in a language that's not their first language, but finding it finding it amusing, and showing that you find it amusing is is part of the the thing that some people find off-putting about going to a song recital if they're not in on that joke particularly they feel i think they feel marginalized and left out of it and and probably won't come again i i think yeah you're you're absolutely right to talk about that scene from monty python i don't know the film you mentioned what do you call it game game night game night but i was also thinking about the scene in the 
Team America by the people who made South, who make South Park. And there's a puppet who who vomits for about four minutes in my memory. In this, after he he the puppet goes drinking. <laughs> which is a wonderful example of the cannabis because a, a puppet has no ability to eat or to... And in this case, they're actually wooden puppets too, and their woodenness is very obvious uh, because they're, they're, they're like slightly crappily animated and stuff, or, or their movements are quite um, puppet-like. There's no attempt to make them very similitudinous, in other words. So the notion that you have these kind of mechanisms which then are prone to... Uh, um, these physical disruptions or eruptions, whether of um, vomit, and of course there's the famous sex scene between the two puppets that goes on forever, which is done like a Karma Sutra. They try every position in the book, you know. Um, and it's just a wonderfully grotesque thing because yeah. they have no genitals even. They're just <laughs> these mechanisms that are basically, you know, f fucking woodenly. Yeah, uh, is wonderfully carnivalesque. But the the thing about this is that. Um, this kind of comedy works or doesn't work because a body is something that we all share. It's cross-cultural in that sense. Mr. Creosote isn't cross-cultural really because that's quite refined carnivalesque. Very, you know, Monty Python are, are very refined. Mr. Bean is probably a bit closer to the, the cross-cultural appeal, you know, the, uh, the kind of scrapes he gets into when he's prone to whatever this, the hilarious one where he, 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 he orders a steak tartare instead of steak and then has to try conceal it, you know. Is everything all right, sir? Oh, yes. <laughs> Are you sure? Oh, yes. We can all laugh at it because the body is something that we all share. We've all, unfortunately, suffered diarrhea. We've all suffered vomiting. We all perhaps even suffered uh, uh, excessive sexual <laughs> um, desire at certain points, which we couldn't satisfy <laughs> or satisfied in ridiculous ways. Um, but at the same time, it's also about abjection, isn't it? So well, perhaps I won't go into it too much because I don't want this to become a very ac academic conversation, but people like uh, the French psychoanalytical theorist, um, Julia Kristeva, built on someone like Bakhtin to talk about how the carnivalesque informs uh, the sense of abjection. Abjection meaning that which is pushed away from you to secure your identity. Now, of, that could be your kind of physical being, so uh, you will shit. As soon as that shit comes out of you, it's no longer of you. Right. Um, you can spit into a cup, but you, the last thing you ever want to do is to drink that back, even though it's just literally come from your mouth. Uh, that's a process of abjection. And it's, it's really gross to us. You know, what we get rid of to secure ourselves is disgusting. Mm -hmm. um, to secure our borders, as it were. Because the whole thing about the carnivalesque is that, according to Bakhtin, and then according to Kristeva in a different way, is that... Its idea of the body is in opposition to the classical idea of the body. If we think of the classical body in something like sculpture, it's a beautiful sealed thing. It's complete. It's finished. It's, 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 it's well proportioned. It's gorgeous. Whereas the carnival body is not necessarily ugly, but it's porous. It's, it's going out to meet the world and the world goes into it to meet it. 
And this is why in a lot of gross out comedy you get, for example, uh, men tend to be uh, sodomized or anally penetrated in some way. You know, you will, they will sit on something or they will, you know, uh, uh, some sort of pole will be inserted into someone's anus comically, this sort of thing. Certainly in the films that you described earlier, these Cinepanettoni, these mm -hmm. Italian carry-on films that were released uh, for a long period uh, around Christmas time, uh, are constantly, uh, they're full of these comic male figures who, who, who will vomit or mimic vomiting or suffer diarrhea and then and their bodies will be penetrated in some way in one particularly comic example by a dog's nose um so this comic vision of the body is absolutely in opposition to the classical vision of the body as a complete finished thing the 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 grotesque body and that's that's Bakhtin's phrase of the uh, carnival is instead a body in becoming, a body that's not complete, a body that's always in process and is continuous with the world rather than sealed off from it. So it's a body never on a pedestal. It's a body probably bigger or fatter or in some way full of uh, 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 things that stick out. So it's a different vision and one that we can find quite disgusting, I suppose. But also, I mean, in all those things, you're describing something which is probably more real and more realistic, more relatable, you know. I, I have many more days when I feel like Homer Simpson than, than days when I feel like Michelangelo's David. <laughs> well, that might be telling about our age rather than anything else, Dan. Um, <laughs> we should tell the listener that you turned 50 only the other day, and I did about a year ago. So, you know, that's right. We're definitely in the latter and more abject part of our lives. <laughs> yes and no is what I would say, though. I mean, and in fact, Bakhtin talked about the aesthetic of the Carnivalesque, or the more precise word being. Um, grotesque realism. So he did talk about this right. idea of realism. Just to kind of talk about how the Carnivalesque has been translated or persists or informs 20th century, let's say, art, and we'll come perhaps talk later, maybe a bit more about opera or more about the songs that, uh, that you're expert in. In, in Joyce's Ulysses, there's a great moment where uh, Leopold Bloom goes into the National Library in Dublin to look at a classical statue, which is, of course, on a pedestal, because he wants to see if it has an anus. Right. And uh, this is absurd, of course, because a classical statue will never acknowledge any sort of, apart from the mouth and the eyes, there's no orifice. You know, there's, this is not something that a, a, a classical statue can acknowledge. It, it's it's a, the, an utterly different aesthetic. And this, in a sense, is Joyce's joke, because, of course, Leopold Bloom is himself a kind of grotesque body within this book. In fact, the first in the very first chapter where we meet him, he he goes he goes to have a shit. He he goes to use the toilet outside, and and the quality of his shit is very precisely described. So mm -hmm. in a you know quite a carnivalesque motif. But that would also lead me. I mean, it's a question of the body, but it also becomes a question of form too. Uh, so the carnivalesque is not, in other words, just a question of content, the kind of stuff that's in a book or a song or a film, but might also be the very form of that thing. Right. I was going to just I was going to say that earlier that I kind of I suggested that it was somewhere where the rules where there weren't any rules. But that's not quite true, is it? It's that the, for the period of that of this thing, there's a different set of rules. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So, and I suppose you could say that um, 
the performance we had in mind based on our dare collaboration as as you say we we imagined it would start off as um, a rather staid perhaps illustrated lecture or acoustically illustrated lecture with some singing uh, plus someone perhaps me uh, uh, lecturing at a, a lectern and then it would that whole kind of scenario will be dissolved or disrupted so it relies on a norm that's disrupted so i suppose you'd say that carnival as such is part of a broader phenomenon uh, of ritual going right back where you have what are called liminal periods Liminality just means being on a threshold. So you can talk about times in parenthesis. So when normal service in society is, as it were, suspended and people indulge or are engaged, often ritualistically, in different sorts of activities to their quotidian activities. And these are moments where, as I say, those quotidian activities and quotidian norms are not simply suspended or they might be inverted, they might be mocked, but perhaps they're also held up to view. So how we organize our society during rituals, for example, carnival is, is, the, is a great one, but you could even think about uh, initiation rites in certain societies when uh, a younger person is being inducted into, let's say, manhood. During those periods, there are various forms of celebration. Marriage is another ritual. Yeah, that's like in funerals and stag yeah, exactly. and things. There are th- they're all things which have an identifiable period where there are a, set, a separate set of rules or traditions or ways we behave. Exactly, and often with a greater license to misbehave. Certainly in the right. Irish tradition, uh, when when you have the wake, for example, which are where, where you mourn, in a kind of party, the uh, uh, the mm-hmm. dead person, and in those moments, there's always someone who, who who is famous for making deeply inappropriate jokes, whichever everyone finds hilarious in those moments. They will tell terrible stories about the dead man or whatever, the dead woman, and this is not simply a license to misbehave, though. It's what you might call a meta-social moment. Now, this is what the anthropologists call it. So it's one where the elements of social life are held up to view and to scrutiny and shown in all their arbitrariness to some extent. So the ways we normally live, the the conventions we normally obey, the, the morals we normally express are, because they're suspended, they're, as it were, foregrounded by inversion. And so we say, well, are these really how we need to live? Might there be a lesson in how we're now living, which is not obeying those conventions, not obeying those norms, those moral uh, strictures, might there be a way in which we're suspending those for the moment that could tell us about different ways in which we could live. So I said that these were liminal moments, so moments within parentheses to kind of temporal parentheses, often, of course, spatial because uh, carnival takes place in a particular place usually. Um, if we think more recently that works of art, and I mean by this theatre or uh, films and so on, these also, at least they used to, take places in, take place in, in given spaces where there was license to do different things. You know, you can go and watch a film that's rated 18, or you can go and see a, a Shakespeare play and see people get decapitated or their hands chopped off and so on. The things that you normally wouldn't do right outside the doors of the theatre, but here it is shown. 
so these liminal, liminal times and liminal moments, these kind of ritual moments of which Carnival is kind of a paradigm case, might teach us about how life might be beyond the liminal moment. And this is what uh, uh, anthropologists call the ultra-liminal, so that which exceeds the liminal. And this is why, of course, or betters tend to be a bit suspicious of things like carnival, or tend to be a bit suspicious of, let's say, violent movies, for example. There's a, there's a theory that watching violent films will make you your, yourself violent. There's a theory that watching, which might indeed be right, that uh, watching a film, let's say, that, that critiques the contemporary uh, political system uh, might itself then inspire you to go and change the, the contemporary political system. And this is um, what anthropologists like Victor Turner and others have talked about as the potential of the carnival moment or of the liminal moment more precisely. And it's still there, let's say in reduced form, but it's still there in the, uh, the metasocial thinking performed by, let's say not liminal, because they're no longer rituals as such, but liminoid. Again, this is Victor Turner's phrase, and excuse me if I'm being a bit academic here. Um, in other words, like liminal, so liminal-ish <laughs> uh, uh, forms like film, like opera, like uh, uh, theatre, and indeed like novels. So, but the point I wanted to make, though, initially before I went off on that sort of digression, which is itself a kind of liminal parenthetic thing, was that in, some, in a book like Ulysses, uh, you have... The content itself carnivalesque in that there's a, a focus on the lower body, there's a, 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 a staging by opposition of the classical and the, the carnivalesque or grotesque aesthetic in the form of Leopold Bloom uh, looking at the statue and so on that I mentioned. But the novel itself is carnivalesque in form because it takes the 19th century novel, the realistic novel, and explodes it. And introduces different discourses, different languages, uh, different registers to trouble the form that it itself begins from. It starts off as a kind of hyper-realistic book and becomes something completely different. So the carnivalesque then is not simply a question of content but of form and of form more so not uh, not just in terms of, um, let's say, a book itself and the, the kind of way a book is written, but the very fact that one immerses oneself in, let's say, a book or a, a piece of theatre in a, in a given space or a film in a given space that is a communal space, once upon a time, and hopefully will be again, the cinema or the theatre. It's, it's a ritual form. It's a ritual time space that you're uh, immersed in. At the, that sandpit we, we had, which is a lovely idea, again, a lovely idea, just a bunch of people sitting around a table playing with an idea, so that's why it's called a sandpit, which is a really nice uh, nice way of referring to it. We discussed various different like real-world examples of carnivalesque behaviour, of carnivals, things like the Lewis Bonfire Night, which is a, a fascinating one and quite a quite dark in a way it, and I had the interesting exception that there was no merriment about it whatsoever and we discussed I think the idea of these festivals uh, 
made me think of of, of, of the Wicker Man, but this, this idea of the Lord of Misrule, you know, where you have a certain period where where the fool is the king and and gets to make all the decisions for the village for for, for the weekend or whatever. And that, presumably, they 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 those things go back a long way and and perform a sort of important cultural role for societies in anthropological terms because they seem to crop up all over the world those kind of like you're saying uh coming of age rituals or another example is um i think it's utoxeter a, a small town in um in the midlands in the potteries uh where they have a, a football game on shrove tuesday and it's like one side of the town against the other side of the town the goals are a couple of miles apart and the rule is you've got to try and get the ball to the goal and, and you know no murder and that's about that's the, I think those are the, the two rules but you know it's a great opportunity for people to to uh, get their differences sorted out and all sorts of things go on but it's a uh, you know it's obviously important for that the culture of that that village that that happens every year um yes I think this is uh is absolutely right and and in fact as an idea it can be translated or transposed to many different contexts apart from those specific ones that you mentioned so these are kind of famous cases mm-hmm. uh the lewis whatever it's called the carnival yeah, bon, bon, where bon they bon where they burn the catholics or something isn't it? Just that uh there's quite a bit of that going on yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 um i mean and what that indicates too is that carnival or these ritual forms that are carnivalesque in character are often done on behalf of we might say society or people but they're groups generally within society. So here it's, mm-hmm. or it might be a particular locality, but it is often the case that carnivalesque misrule or misbehavior is at the expense of other groups. Um, and perhaps I'll come back to that in a moment, but, or we can come back to that in a moment, because that was one of the arguments you had, if, or at least one of the discussions we had at the uh, the sandpit, if you remember, where there was a, I don't remember the name of the gentleman who presented the, the so his own slides of the Lewis uh, Yeah, bonfire. his photo, amazing photos yeah. of the bonfire. Um, yeah. But there was a sense in which, you know, he talked about how certain people in Lewis who lived there got the hell out of it during that weekend. Uh, because they wanted yeah, no yeah. part of this kind of uh, uh, disruption and misbehavior. And I think it's often the case that there's a celebration, and you find this in Bakhtin as well, there's a celebration of the carnivalesque as some sort of unalloyed good, but actually the performance of of abjection, to come back, back to that phrase, is often at the it's someone else's objection. Often mm. it might be your own if you drink too much and you end up vomiting and feeling unwell. But if there's a kind of hilarious violence, which is often the case, um, so violence that's coded as comic, but that might be at the expense of someone else and certainly intended to humiliate someone else, that will be the expense then of other groups, perhaps minorities. Uh, perhaps outsiders of some sort. But I was thinking today, actually, because I don't know if you're aware, the the media is full of all these um, warnings about the, the imminent crisis of the university sector because of problems to do with enrollment due to coronavirus and so on. And this has been pushing a... Uh, an idea that... Uh, encouraging an idea that's been present now for some time within 
not the university sector so much as those people who are responsible for the university sector, so in government and so on, who are saying, why does university degree have to be three or, ev or even more years long? Why can't we get rid of the summer holidays and let people get their degree in a year and a half or in eight, you know, whatever is it, 24 mm -hmm. months? Yeah. This is interesting because what's happening here is that people think they're making an argument on the basis of economy. But really what they're doing is deriving a set of conclusions or a set of propositions from the fact that lives, the way we organize our social life, and I mean by that our life course as well, is changing in societies like the UK. Because once upon a time, the three years or perhaps four of the university was simply a, an initiation rite. It's not about an education specifically. It's about the transition from childhood to adulthood. So that's why you have the three years when you misbehave for mm -hmm. three years. It becomes this carnival period where, you know, famously students like to drink, students like to misbehave, students like to experiment with um, uh, sexual behavior that they might later renounce or deny or disavow. Uh, so what you have there is this carnivalesque period. And in Leeds, uh, you might have been aware of this when you were singing there, working for Upper North, they have, for example, this tradition of the, um, the Otley Run. I don't know about Do that. Do you know about this? Yeah. So the Otley Run is a pub crawl. Right. And it's a pub crawl that's done in uh, fancy dress. Typically male fancy dress mm -hmm. and transvesticism. Yep. So uh, you often see this kind of sports boys dressed up in ballet tutus, yeah. this sort of thing. Um, now, this is completely carnivalesque behavior where by cross-dressing, so in other words, invent, inverting the normal uh, gender uh, strictures you or, or, or modes, you, uh, or at least appearance, uh, you give yourself license to then indulge in other sorts of uh, 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 transgressive behavior. In this case, excessive drinking and insulting mm. and playing around in the street and causing trouble and so on. So this is only really just to say that these ritual moments or uh, carnivalesque type uh, events like you mentioned Lewis or this uh, football game that takes place in I forget the name of the it, town I football think, I think it's Utah, so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, can also be seen in very extended ways so university and because now uh, universities are no longer necessarily only or, 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 or primarily for young British students. They now make much of their money from foreign students coming for MAs or indeed for mature students and so on. The whole idea of a three-year initiation, a kind of a, a liminal period where uh, normal social behaviour is suspended, this is no longer seen to, be, seen to pertain. So whereas the politicians who say that a university degree needs to be, you know, only 18 months or two years, think they're doing so on the basis of economy, what they're actually acknowledging is social change that makes these kind of extended initiation rights or initiation periods of suspension of, well, mm -hmm. let's say suspension between childhood and adulthood uh, is no longer like its primary function. Something occurred to me then when are talking about the cross-dressing especially. It's interesting that, that a lot of these kind of uh, old 
sort of carnival, carnivalesque theatrical ideas and, and methods like the cross-dressing uh, and, you know, like the, the Commedia dell'arte characters uh, that come very much from that world do come into our theatrical tradition. And a lot of them ha- stayed in at a time when other elements of the carnivalesque in, in that theatre disappeared. So in the UK, we're all, we're, as children, we all grow up going to pantomimes and you don't think twice about the fact that the main, the lead boy character is played by a woman. And the, the, the hideous aunt uh, is played by a man. And that is just part of it's part of the sort of theatrical language that we understand. And there's there's a reason for it. And there's a, the, like you say, it, it gives license for all sorts of things which wouldn't be possible if they were being played uh, by the by their ordinary sex. And this comes up in opera a lot of the time. And, and it's funny, there's a disconnect which uh, some people who are, who are not familiar with opera see that and just think it's odd you know why in Strauss's operas for instance do you have Octavian played by a woman or or the composer in Aradnal Naxos but as soon as you relate that if you if you if you point out to someone who's asked that question to characters in, in pantomimes they a kind of a light bulb goes off and I think uh, experienced opera goers f- forget that connection because they're used to these roles being played cross-dressed or you know transvestite kind of characters they're just used to it and they 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 forget that there might be a sort of theatrical tradition to why that might have happened and that's really interesting to me and there's a great example of this in the marriage of figaro where you have carabino who is this this kind of randy uh adolescent boy who's just after all the women involved and 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 is falling in love and is, is he's just really horny the whole time he is played by a mezzo soprano, yeah, which 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 in itself is interesting and slightly sort of confusing and titillating in some way. Uh, and then there's a scene in which, as a bit of fun, for the countess and Susanna, her her servant, they get Carabino to dress up as a girl, one of the local girls from the village. So you have this situation where uh, a woman playing a man is playing a woman and trying to deceive characters within the within the show it's it's an incredible sort of complication in your mind which I think probably, you know, at its root has this 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 sort of carnivalesque theatricality you're talking about, the kind of cross-dressing being a, being a key thing to, to that world. Without a doubt. I mean, it's not so much a theatrical root as I would say something more profoundly ritualistic, actually. In the mm. sense that if we think about what happens in not just carnival, but beyond that, in liminal-style performance genres which is what the anthropologists refer to it as. The whole thing about cross-dressing is, of course, it destabilizes. I mean, this is the, we have this discourse, it's very familiar to us now, but it destabilizes the rigidity of binary gender. We're very familiar with this now with things like RuPaul's Drag Race, you know, where this discourse is very much in, uh, being uh, theorized around that, you know, in the popular sphere, let's say. But 
I mean, to speak specifically of male transvesticism, so men dressing as women, that has uh, very interesting, I suppose you'd say, misogynistic origins. And it's, to an extent, someone like Les Dawson, who famously had, I don't remember the name of his character that he used to play. Who, so for those who don't know, I suppose we should explain. Uh, Les <laughs> Dawson was a great British comedian who was very familiar on UK TV, on British TV, who used to do a character who was uh, a woman. So it was a drag character. But it, it wasn't a RuPaul-style drag character. It was rather a middle-aged lady who was grousing about life or whatever. Apparently got drunk on rhubarb wine. He had one too many. And he stumbled in the greenhouse. <laughs> Fell across his prized tomato. And was impaled on one of those. Oh! <laughs> they do say when they found him in the following morning, a big smile on his face. <laughs> And a lovely disposition. The good ones always go first. <laughs> Trusting God and keep your bowels open, is <laughs> You might say that Les Dawson would be impossible now, although, of course, the popularity of Mrs. Brown's boys would, would kind of contradict that. Because it's misogynistic, or it's perceived to be. And it's rightly perceived to be, because mm. even though when I go back and look at those clips, yeah. I still find them quite amusing, actually. Yes partly because of his adeptness at inhabiting this character. You might not find it plausible as a woman of a certain age, but rather that the sheer immersion in the reality of that uh, in incorporated being is very persuasive and, and, um, and detailed. But once upon a time, I would say once upon a time, it's still kind of there in, in a certain undercurrent of culture, women were seen to be non-rational women were seen to be, uh, this is kind of in standard cultural discourse and also religious discourse around certain medieval period, subject to the impulses, let's say, of the lower body. So subject to urges in a way that they couldn't control because they were inherently, by their sex, irrational beings. Well, that word, the very word hysterical comes from that. that well, kind of hysterical issue, means it? wandering womb. Um, it comes from the idea of the uh, the wandering womb, which goes back to the Greeks, if I remember correctly. That was that's part of the same cultural mm -hmm. representation of woman as inherently irrational and subject to, I suppose, her body. Uh, whereas man is the head, man is the rational being, and I should say, I'm, you know, we're talking about. Uh, it's kind of laughable when well, you think about it now. Isn't it? So, but but this is intriguing because what happens is to for a man then to dress as a woman is to take on that ability to be irrational, that ability to uh, uh, to misbehave because they're no longer subject to the same rational uh, oversight. And this is misogynistic, of course, because it's based on a misogynistic order of gender or order of representation of gender. But it's also to some extent, are potentially at least powerful because uh, it's, it, there's great historians like Natalie Zeman Davis, who's a, an American historian, who has talked about how political protest in, in France in the pre-revolutionary period, if I remember correctly, I don't remember now, men often dressed as women in order to perform politi political protest. Because to, to, to cross-dress was to allow them to resist the given order and to be given license to do so. Mm. When you get this kind of cross-dressing too, I mean, this is my question for you, actually. I'm not going to comment on this, but I, I'd like to ask you what you think. 
is there a sense in which this kind of cross-dressing, perhaps especially male to female cross-dressing, so male transvesticism, that it's also a disruptive force within, let's say, an opera context when you see it deployed? The, the thing I can't get out of my head uh, when you say that is a production I did at Opera North. This doesn't really answer your question in terms of opera in general because this was a, a production choice rather than something that's actually in the piece. But in the, the opera man, by Manuel de Falla, La Vida Breve, which was part of a uh, fabulous double bill that I was, I was involved in with that piece and Janice uh, Skiki, directed by Chris Alden. In fact, Skiki has plenty of kind of carnivalesque elements to it. Yeah, in, in that production of La Vida Breve, I was playing a, a cross-dressing character. So in the original piece, it's an offstage voice, someone working at a, in a forge singing a song. But in, in Chris's amazing production, it became, uh, he became this onstage character. He was a guy who you know, dressed himself up to the nines and worked at a, at a sewing machine making these dresses. And in the factory, you have all these women making dresses and all the men shifting stuff around and, you know, doing manly jobs. And uh, my character made everyone feel very uncomfortable. And, and it was it was a sort of kind of parallel story to, to which, which showed a lot about the, the discomfort of the main character and, and, and how she didn't fit in. My character actually met a very violent death at the hands of the chorus. There was one provocation too many where I was being too sassy and they that's it, they'd had enough. And I ended up smashing my brains in on my sewing machine. So, I mean, that's a great example of the, the sort of cross-dressing character disrupting and making everyone so uncomfortable that they had to get rid of it, flush it away kind of thing. In terms of cross-dressing, I'm, I'm just thinking of examples of, of men playing women. One of the very first operas, well, quite early on, it was one of, I think, Monteverdi's last opera, the Coronation of Poppea, but it's like mid-17th century, so it's in the very early days of opera. You have this wonderful character, Arnalta, who's usually sung by a man. It, it, depending on the production, there's also another another maid character in the other household. Nutrice is also sung by a man. And they, they have this fantastic, especially uh, Arnalta, they, they have a fantastic sort of license to comment on what's going on. And there's something about, you know, they're comic. They're very funny and, you, you know, they can be played for laughs. But there's there are moments of absolute kind of beauty and serenity, which maybe you couldn't reach if you weren't allowed into that character by how, by the, the sort of slightly scurrilous nature that they have, which makes them kind of relatable. And they, they have a direct kind of contact with the audience in that way, in that in the same in a kind of pantomime way. I'm struggling to think of like examples in kind of mainstream opera. So much, so much more that the travesty roles in, in better known mainstream opera are the other way around. You have uh, women playing men, which is, doesn't fall so much into the standard sort of carnivalesque mode. Well, it's perceived it? to be less of a transgression. That's for sure. Yeah. 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 It might be worth picking up on, on the point you made where your character was was killed in the end. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's Vida yeah. Breda. Yeah. I mean, yeah. here, here, this is obviously a story. It's a story of uh, that that you're, as it were, illustrating or or producing. But in Carnival itself, there's been a lot of, um, I suppose you'd say, political argument about the utility of of the Carnivalesque, about whether this way in which holding up the normal mores or the normal conventions of society to a kind of metasocial inspection might actually be politically useful or not. Because just as your character there 
is, as it were, shut down at the end, in that case literally, uh, by, by being killed. There's a sense in which Carnival is shut down and therefore it might simply be a safety valve for antisocial impulses, we'll put it like that. So instead of having, let's say, a genuine political movement, what you do is you let the people get drunk for three weeks or one week mm-hmm. or whatever it might be, and then you don't have to worry anymore about their political uh, grievances because they've, they've just let, let off steam mm-hmm. and then shut it down at the end. Nothing like opening up the pubs... To, to signal the end of a pandemic. Yeah, well, indeed, yeah. I mean, there, we can think of all sorts of um, possible analogies in con- contemporary uh, circumstances. I mean, the, but the question that it's leading to for me, though, takes us back to how we opened the conversation when you mentioned my book on the Battle of Algiers. The Battle of Algiers, for those people who don't know, is a 1966 film, a joint production by Italian and Algerian producers about the struggle for national liberation of the Algerian people. And it ends without that liberation being achieved. It ends two years before uh, Algeria actually established itself as um, an independent nation. But it shows that struggle in ways that are uh, very moving, but also, in a sense, carnivalesque, because it shows the inversion of the social order during a period of guerrilla warfare, uh, where women cross-dress, in this case, they're Muslim Algerian women who uh, cross-dress as Europeans, as French, to be able to move through checkpoints and so on. So it's a kind of a kind of a less te- text in, in a surprising way. Now, my point, though, is, or the question I want to ask, and perhaps help, I want to ask you to help me think it, <laughs> is political cinema, for example, or let's say art in general that has aspirations beyond mere entertainment, and I'm putting that in heavy inverted commas because I like mere entertainment. Is this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a genuine way to empower its viewer or listener or uh, reader, or is it simply a way of dissolving, let's say, the, the political impulses, the impulses to change in that viewer or reader? Are you saying there's, that there's, there's a danger of political work that by seeing it or experiencing it and relating to it, it might sedate the political urges of the person who's seen it because they feel like they've achieved something simply by appreciating that. Sedate or indeed sate. So sate the political appetite by showing something being achieved within you know, the confines of this liminoid form. So in other words, this, this uh, carnivalesque form, uh, whether it be opera, whether it be a book like Ulysses, whether it be a film like The Battle of Algiers, we feel like we've done the political work, perhaps. I'm just saying political, though, as a kind of... Think of that as a placeholder for any sort of aspiration to social change. Yeah. Uh, so we feel that, as you say, satisfied or sated, um, or sedated, as you said. Uh, uh, we feel we've done the work by seeing the film, by l- listening to the political, politically motivated opera, or reading the book about uh, Black Lives Matter. So... Is it, is it simply a safety valve or is it a way instead of enjoining us to join in the performance of the ultra-liminal, to go back to the, the, the vocabulary I was using right. earlier? So if what we're seeing within a film like The Battle of Algiers, when we watch it for the duration of its two hours, is the performance of political revolution, by seeing that, by a kind of an immersion in that story, are we then 
inspired afterwards to go and ourselves foment some some species of local political revolution it doesn't have to be on that mm-hmm. scale mm-hmm. or is it instead just a way of of satisfying that impulse in us and draining it away so more generally then is the carnivalesque uh, uh as i say a safety valve mechanism which is what terry eagleton said and indeed umberto eco umberto eco talked about the carnivalization of social life that we have now where we have a kind of an expansion of leisure and of pleasure, you know, kind of bread and circuses approach that keeps us placid in the face of the kind of land grab performed by our betters, you know, the the injustices of the society that we live with. So that's a rather massive and absurd question, um, because I can think of all sorts of objections to what I've you know, all sorts of ways to to not answer the question that will be perfectly valid. But I was just wondering what you think. I mean, apparently this is a question for you as an artist, right? So, you know, what are you doing? What do you hope to achieve with the work that you do? Implicit in this conversation is the notion that where once there was carnival, now there are these carnivalesque moments or forms or uh, uh, ways of um, being together with others, let's say, for the enjoyment of art. So I'm saying, in other words, that when you go to an opera at Opera North, you are doing something that has something in common with what a medieval village did when it performed carnival Mm -hmm. for up to three months at a time, when normal society was suspended. But... As an artist, right, if, if we're taking for granted then that there is something still in this ritual moment of communal attendance at an artistic event, like, for example, an opera, which itself has carnivalesque origins in places like Venice, what are we doing for the society that is coming to see it and coming to hear okay. it? And as an artist, what do you aspire to within that? I mean, apart from making a living. I think to answer your original question about my take on it, about whether whether this thing is is going to engage people in some kind of sort of a- active behaviour rather than sort of you know being sated by that that thing is uh, I do think that we have a lot of behaviours where by watching the thing we might give ourselves permission to believe that we've we're a part of this cause you know this idea of virtue signalling it could be part of those that set of instincts. In terms of when I'm creating something, when I when I, you know I'm a part of something that's that I feel like I've I've been a part of, uh, responsible in some way for the content, and that can be that can be in in a production of an existing opera. You know that, that it all depends on how the director works, what kind of trust they have in, on your instincts as a as a as a, a creator as an artist. I do want to make people think. I play quite a lot of unpleasant characters. That's just kind of the nature of the kind of performer I am, I guess, and the, the kind of voice I have. I play quite a lot of schemers or these these kind of character roles, which are often very interesting characters, but often quite unpleasant. And I quite enjoy being unpleasant. I enjoy the license to have that, the license to misbehave. You know, this is this is other sort of carnivalesque concept. Is this why you've cultivated this dastardly moustache? Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yep. There's no excuse for it other than lockdown, really. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, absolutely. In fact, the first time I I grew a handlebar moustache, or the first time I employed it on stage, as it were, was uh, when I was playing Mon- Monostatos, a particularly unpleasant character in in the Magic Flute. And he is very much a sort of carnivalesque character, totally driven by his loins. A quite troubling 
uh, character to have to deal with in in uh, the choice that the directors make, given the sort of background of where where that character comes from, uh, and the dealing with slavery and stuff that's within the libretto, uh, and so quite a lot of creative solutions had to come up with that to to make it acceptable to the sort of modern sensibilities, uh, and and to make it relevant and valid. But yeah, and so I I enjoy making people feel a bit uncomfortable. I kind of like it afterwards when when I get booed for that reason, when I come on for applause at the end of a show. But when I'm creating things myself, so when I'm actually putting stuff together, I, what I really want to do is is to get people to, to think. So, so coming back to that idea. And to think about things in a way that they maybe hadn't before. So to, to come across things that maybe they thought they knew and to, to look at it with fresh eyes, to hear a poem in a, in a in a way that they hadn't thought about hearing it before. It's not about changing people's lives or making people better or making myself better or or anything like that you know I, I love it after a performance if someone comes to talk to me and says it picks out one moment in a song or in a piece or in an aria where they responded in a specific way because when we're preparing this material you spend a lot of time thinking about every single moment every bar line every word and and it's lovely when when something you've thought hard about and crafted in practice actually comes across? Well, I mean, first of all, thank you for the answer, and I appreciate what you said. But what you've talked about, right, is your attention to the material and then the effect it would have, and you said, on someone. You talked about making people think, but who are these people? Are these people individuals or are they a community? In other words, who is this work addressed to? And I think this is where we come back again to Carnival because Bakhtin said Carnival was the people's second life. And what by the people he meant, really he meant you know, the kind of non-rural, non-aristocrats. So the community of folk, and he said the Carnival body, the grotesque body, is a body that's nothing like it's in conception. It's nothing like the conception of the body that we have now as an individual thing. It's rather a social body. Mm. It represents, if you like, the carnival body, he says, or the grotesque body knows no death because all bodies, even if they die, there will be more bodies to replace them. In fact, in dying, they're perhaps generating the next body. So the social body is constantly reproducing itself. So when we make art now, excuse the excuse the first person pronoun, when you make art, when one makes art... Uh, you make art, <laughs> um, You do. Are we addressing just a bunch of individuals and hoping that we will move perhaps the more sensitive of them? Or do we have any idea of a community that we are engaging? That audience that you see outside the proscenium march, outside the fourth wall in the, uh, the Grand Theatre in, in, in Leeds, is that a community or is it just a bunch of individuals who have paid more or less money to get to more or less better seats with better <laughs> sight lines. That's really interesting. I haven't really been made to think in those terms before, and that it's very interesting to address that. But I think for me, I definitely am singing to a bunch of individuals. It's so interesting to think about that in theatrical terms, because what you're describing about like addressing a mass, a body of people, feels more to me like political speaking. And I guess you're talking about 
you know, art as a form of activism in some way, political political works of art and things like that, that I, that I guess are fulfilling that role. But it also sounds a bit like pantomime, though, doesn't it? Just to go back to something you raised earlier. You know when you get those call and responses in yes. pantomime? Right. Oh, yes. no, he isn't. Yeah, that's you true. Know, and so on. So again, there's the ritual aspect, you see, where everyone is involved. Yeah. It's ritual. And the pantomime is a kind of a ritual in that sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. And... Uh, you know, I've I've done kind of song workshops and things where you you get an audience to help write a song. Like people come up with the words, and then someone will improvise a tune over a, over an accompaniment, and then everyone learns the song and everyone sings together. And those sing along moments are really powerful. It's really fantastic, particularly as that's a in in that example you have this sort of collective activity where where the whole room, this body of people, has created this song and it becomes their song, and that's a really powerful moving moment always the most moving pieces of music for me are when you have a body of people singing as one so it's always the choruses and operas that get me I remember like a real formative moment for me was seeing Peter Grimes at uh, English National Opera I was still an undergraduate and I, I took a trip into London and in those days there were a couple of seats that were directly behind the conductor that they sold on the day and I queued for those and got those tickets, was so sitting in the front row of the stalls. And there's this moment in Peter Grimes when the whole chorus who are out to lynch him come to the front of the, front of the stage. Peter Grimes! This incredible thing. And I just remember the hair's standing up all over my body in that moment and and it it's for me in operas but in football matches and rugby matches and mass vigils funerals weddings that it's when everyone is singing when a body of people are singing as one that i i am most moved by what i'm hearing and i struggle to join in with those things quite often i, I find it very hard to to sing when i when i'm i'm moved in that way but that's that's more me as an audience member, I think, than as a performer. And generally speaking, I think my approach when I'm preparing music and programmes and thinking about stuff is is addressing the individual rather than the body. So, that's, But it's very interesting. I hadn't, I'd never really thought about it that way. I, I feel now I've got more things to think about that I've got to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Thanks again for um, talking about uh, those moments that you find moving, though. That was very intriguing to listen to. I have to think about it further myself. You've been listening to a Thinking with Opera podcast produced by Opera North and the University of Leeds. For more information and further reading on the subjects discussed, you can download the accompanying notes. Visit operanorth.co.uk for more audio and video streaming and the latest news and performance details.